Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. For many Mexican and Central Americans here in California, 1986 was the year that their lives and their children's lives changed forever. That was the year that the Immigration Reform and Control Act passed out of Congress and was signed into law by President Ronald Reagan. Millions of people who had been undocumented suddenly found themselves on the path to citizenship. Their children would grow up Americans. And one of those kids, Eric Galindo, co-created a podcast out of the shadows, Children of 86, to explore this complex act. With Republicans drifting ever further right on immigration, we revisit the mid-1980s and talk about what the act intended to do and what it actually did. That's coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Nowadays, the Republican stance on immigration can be summed up in three words. Build the wall. But there was a time when conservative immigration policy sounded a lot like this. And we could have a very hostile and strange neighbor on our border. Rather than making them or talking about putting up a fence, why don't we work out some recognition of our mutual problems, make it possible for them to come here legally with a work permit, and then while they're working and earning here, they pay taxes here. That was, of course, Ronald Reagan, former governor of California, former president of the United States, And it was Reagan, Reagan of the drug war, Reagan of the Iran-Contra affair, and also Reagan of mourning in America, who signed the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act, or IRCA, as we'll probably end up calling it here today sometimes. Our first guest, Eric Galindo, is the co-creator and co-host of the podcast Out of the Shadows, Children of 86, which details the complex relationship between immigration politics, immigrant families, and this man, Ronald Reagan. Welcome, Eric. Hey, how's it going? Hey, good, good. So tell me, what what happened for your family or to your family when Erka, when the amnesty actually became law? Yeah, you know, my my entire life probably changed because of Erka. Um, I was in a mixed status family. I was actually the only one in my family that was born here. Um, so my older brother, both my parents were undocumented. And 
that caused a lot of stress, um, both mentally and financially. Um, my dad had to work a lot of odd jobs. So did my mom, um, getting paid under the table. And, um, you know, there was always the stress that like the migra was going to get us. And then suddenly all that went away. Um, and my parents were able to get, um, you know, higher paying jobs, uh, eventually save up, buy a home, move us to a nicer neighborhood. Um, we went from like living in trailers and moving around a lot to our first home, you know, in a place called the Mexican Beverly Hills of all places. So <laughs> it really did change the course of my life. Yeah. You know, in the first uh, episode of your podcast, your co-host Patty Rodriguez you know, she tells you that she had the realization that her life, quote, would not have been possible without Ronald Reagan. And you react to it in the podcast. You just say very simply, like, damn. <laughs> but before you did the podcast, I mean, how did you view or how did you see Ronald Reagan? You know, I, so, as, like, a journalist, I was I basically raised to be cynical, right? So in terms of politicians, I've always kind of, I look at most of them through this sort of uh, lens of like everyone's complicated at the very least. Um, I, so I knew about Urca, but I hadn't really put it together. You know, I hadn't really connected the significance of it until Patty brought it up to me. Mm-hmm. And that's just her mind is like, a, uh, she's like a big picture person. She thinks that way. And I'm always like on the granular stuff. Mm-hmm. So just having her connected for me kind of blew my mind. Like, but I, I knew who Reagan was, you know, he was, he was uh, this person who uh, created a war on my community, um, the war on drugs, you know, created trickle down economics, really devastated a lot of the middle class, especially in communities of color. You know, he'd been on tape uh, saying racist things. Um you know, like overtly racist things. I mean, the Southern strategy was created or like implica- implemented by Ronald Reagan to get elected. So I, I knew all that kind of stuff. I just, and I also knew about like, you know, some of the more uh, positive things that he'd done, um, specifically Urca. So I, I just never looked at him as like a whole person before and looked at his, uh, examined his entire like repertoire as a president before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also I got to learn during, during the podcast, what I really got to learn is like, like the history of uh, what he did in California too, which was, you know, we're still feeling the effects of Reagan. I think that's what I learned the most is like, this, this eight, these eight years that he was president, I think really shaped the current reality that we are living through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're talking about the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act and the wide ranging changes that it brought to the United States. We are joined by Eric Galindo, journalist, writer, podcast creator, TV showrunner, producer, co host uh, <laughs> of Out of the Shadows, the Children of 86 uh, podcast. We would love to hear from you. Did you or your family participate in 86 Amnesty? Could you tell us your story? The number is 866 733. 6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, of course. It's KQED Forum. 
the email is forum at kqed.org. And again, we're asking for your stories about the 1986 uh, amnesty, also known as IRCA. I uh, want to bring on our other guest for the hour. Uh, Ana Raquel Mignan is Associate Professor of History at Stanford University. They're the author of Undocumented Lives, the Untold Story of Mexican Migration. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me here. Oh, hey. Thank you very much, Ana. Really, really appreciate you having you on the show. Um, you know, you've made the point in your work that so much of how we think about uh, Mexican migration focus on what happens when people get to the border or come or cross it. But there's so much to learn about the dynamics in Mexico that influence that uh, migration. So maybe set us up before IRCA. What did that what did those dynamics look like both in Mexico uh, and, and here in the U.S.? Yeah, so I think that what truly influenced what happened in IRCA started much earlier. Um, in the Second World War in 1942, the United States needed workers to come to America. And so, and Mexican workers in Mexico needed work. And so what the United States did was a bilateral agreement with Mexico called the Bracero Program. Bracero mm -hmm. comes from the word arm. And it recruited guest workers from Mexico to come and work for short periods of time in the United States. So Mexican workers would come and go and come and go, come to the United States, work for short periods of time, and then return to Mexico. In 1965, the United States Congress decides to end the program, and Mexican workers who had become accustomed over so many years to coming and going and to finding work in the United States find themselves that they can no longer cross the border legally. And so they start crossing the border without papers. Um, and that is sort of how IRCA comes about. In the United States, what was happening is in the 1970s, there's a recession. People start frowning on undocumented migration, start blaming Mexicans for the recession. Whereas in Mexico, people need work. They've become accustomed to coming to the United States, finding work here. And there's very few job opportunities in Mexico. So people cross the border, but they do so without the intention of staying in the United States. They continue the pattern of what's called circular migration, of coming and going. Before IRCA, people did not want to come and stay in the United States. They wanted to live primarily in Mexico. Yeah. You know, we have uh, another cut from Out of the Shadows with co-host Patty Rodriguez talking about her father's experiences and reasons for coming to the United States, kind of a good example of this uh, kind of circular migration and its effects back in Mexico. My dad was seeing how his rancho was changing, and he wanted that, too, for his family. Houses were being built. People were wearing shoes. And he wanted that, too. He was the oldest, and the responsibility weighed heavy on him. Coming to the U.S. seemed to be working for everyone else around him. Why couldn't he have a piece of it, too? And soon as my dad arrived, he began building my abuelitos a home with the money he was sending back. His entire family went from living in a shack, everyone sleeping on the floor, to having a house of their own with walls and doors. And my dad did that for his family. Many young Mexican men did just that. Ana Raquel Mignan, um, 
we just heard Patty Rodriguez describing her her family's experience and the the way that the people and money were flowing back to these ranchos in in Mexico. Um, yeah. When we have Urca go into play, so what what happens at that point? So I have to say the experience that we just heard about first is very common. That was exactly what was happening, not just for that family, but for everyone. They were seeing people come back. And so they were like, OK, we want to go to the United States as well. Um, now, in when Urca occurred in 1986, we've already heard about the legalization part where people in the United States who were already here without papers were given the right to legalize their status especially if they had been here for over five years or had been working in agriculture. But IRCA had a different side to it, which was it increased the fortification of the border. More money went after IRCA to patrolling the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm. So what happened after that? People who had become accustomed to coming to the United States without papers, working for short periods of time and returning to Mexico only to come here back again to work, found themselves that it was extremely, increasingly dangerous to cross the border. Now the border was much more fortified and paying for smugglers was extremely expensive. So what they decided to do was that beforehand, it was only men who would come, or primarily men who would come, work and return to be with their families. When it became almost impossible for them to continue this pattern of circular migration, Men encouraged their whole families, their wives and children, to cross the border once and settled in the United States. So what happened was the fortification of the border from Urca changed the pattern of circular migration from one that was primarily men that would come and go, not live permanently in the United States, to one of entire families crossing the border and staying here. Yeah. So it had a very... There's two aspects of IRCA that's important to mention, the legalization, but also the fortification of the border. We're exploring the legacy of the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act with Ana Raquel Mignan, Associate Professor of History at Stanford University and author of Undocumented Lives, The Untold Story of Mexican Migration, and Eric Galindo, journalist, producer, and co-host of the podcast Out of the Shadows, Children of 86. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are exploring the legacy of the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act. We're joined by Eric Galindo, co-host of Out of the Shadows, Children of 86, which is a podcast that really got inspired the show. And Ana Raquel Mignan, Associate Professor of History at Stanford University and author of Undocumented Lives, The Untold Story of Mexican Migration. We would love to hear from you. Do you did you or your family experience this 1986 amnesty in one way or another. Could you call us up? Tell us your story. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, it's a KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. So, Eric, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Reagan and how you ended up delving into this in the podcast. Like, how did you come to try and understand why it would be Ronald Reagan who would sign this bill? Yeah, you know, I think um, for us, like, if you grow up in a certain, like, demographic, like, Ronald Reagan is sort of this, like, surrealistic person. Like, he exists in this weird nether space um, where... He impacted your life in a lot of ways, but you never really were old enough to understand what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And also, like, um, our parents really seemed to like him. Our grandparents really seemed to like him. But everything you've heard about him is kind of bad. And then diving deep into his legacy was really um, important for us to understand, like, what, what made this person the guy that would just kind of sign this bill. Mm-hmm. He's so powerful. He vetoed so many bills. He, uh, you know, the day he signed IRCA, he vetoed like a clean water bill. So like there was just a lot of things that he, that were in his past. And I think one of the things that really, I feel shaped possibly his his experience was that he did, you know, he was from California and he hung out mm-hmm. in uh, you know, diverse communities, specifically one of his best friends was a Mexican-American in Los Angeles. He was a bartender. Um, and, you know, he was a big fan of Fernando Valenzuela. So there was like so many different things. And you try to kind of justify why this guy that sort of destroyed parts of Latin America in and, you know, defense of communism, defense against communism, like, would be the guy who gives, you know, three million families a shot. Mm-hmm. I, and and so that that's kind of what we were, like, doing, you know, and it really kind of broke our brains a lot of the time. <laughs> um, and, you know, one of the episodes we decided to really just kind of... Um, quote unquote, talk to Ronald Reagan and and get his perspective in in the most, uh, in the best way we knew how, was like try to understand his history. But we also didn't want to like make the podcast about him. Mm -hmm. You know, the people who fought for this bill were actually a lot of allies. It was a lot of the actual families and communities that were being impacted. And we really wanted to do this as a love letter to our families and have their voices on here and have them tell their stories of the time and focus less so on on Reagan, but 
it definitely is impossible to avoid talking about him when you're talking about a landmark bill like yeah. this that he yeah. signed. You know, you have a pretty amazing character in Senator Alan Simpson, who you were able to get on the line. Um, can you tell us about his role in Congress and just kind of who, who he was? Alan Simpson, you know, we, we did, many times has been described as like this cowboy from Wyoming. He was kind of like this guy who curses and who's like loud and always tells the truth and talks about how like the business of making laws is ugly and and you know when we went and finally got to talk to him he basically lived up to all those expectations <laughs> he sounds like a big old cowboy on uh, yeah on the podcast yeah yeah i even pissed him off a couple times you know just just asking questions and it was i was just like whoa 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 like i'm i'm just i'm just trying to get to the bottom of this and he he was instrumental in many ways in getting this bill passed um he fought like there were several different versions of this bill that died in congress and he just kept bringing it back bringing it back bringing it back and was willing to make you know this this word that now feels like a dirty word in 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 congress which is compromise he was willing to make lots of compromises with lots of different groups in order to do what he thought was best for the country. You know, uh, immigration at the time was seen a, a more of a as an economic situation and a human rights issue than it was a political one like it is today. Um, and so I think that, like, if anyone, you know, it, it wasn't just Simpson, there was many people involved in the mm-hmm. bill, but he was, he does seem to be the guy who, like, took it as far as he could all the way past the finish line. And in fact, when the bill passed, you know, he he had this moment on on the floor of the Congress where he's kind of almost having like this uh, like breakdown, emotional breakdown of joy. He just finally got this thing. His life's work finally passed. And 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 the, the, the interesting part about him is the like, you know, I asked him why he did it and he really talked about like his life as a lawyer and how he actually had helped Baracetos, um deal with things that like most people don't have to deal with. Like the, they, they couldn't even get, you know, like access to restrooms, you know, mm-hmm. while they were working. Um, like they, he tells a story about this uh, beet farmer who got sold a, a lemon and he was sold a lemon, a lemon of a car. Yeah. Yeah. A lemon of a car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. It was, a, it was like a, a, a hoopty, right? Like he got sold his bad car by like a really powerful guy in town and nobody wanted to take his case. And Alan Simpson took this case. So it was kind of this thing where like he saw injustice and he also saw, you know, this as a way to fix what he perceived to be a problem at the border. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's the one thing about this bill is that even though it did have amnesty, it was intended as a bill to stop migration. Yeah. Um, it actually wound up having uh, an inverse effect, right? Um, although I don't know if you could stop migration like after what the the Reagan administration did in Latin America. You know, it was just they created this like storm. And then 
you know, we're trying to figure out who to blame for the rain, you know? Right. We're having a uh, couple little issues on the phone. So if you're calling in, hang tight. We're, uh, we're working on going to get it worked out. Um, Ana Raquel, Mignan, the, there are these economic drivers of, of immigration, both in Mexico and in Central American countries. There's the political um, situations and, and war and conflict in Central America. But there's also these political drivers inside the U.S. And that tension has, you know, it, it remains uh, in American politics. What do you think, you know, as a historian, what do you think was different about this moment that allowed this compromise to, to happen. Of course, there's the personalities, there's Simpson, there's Reagan, there's the Democrats who are working on this as well, it's bipartisan legislation. But but what was different, do you think, in the underlying structures? I think what, what's particularly interesting to me is that Reagan, for instance, used to be in favor, um, like the right, what we would consider the right wing in America for a long time until the 1970s was very much in favor of undocumented migration. And it was the traditional left, the unions who weren't. And why was the right in favor of undocumented migration? Because it was primarily employers who were also Reagan's friends mm-hmm. who wanted workers. But as Reagan comes to power with sort of this lemma of law and order, he suddenly realizes he needs to also implement it in his policies toward immigration rather than allowing undocumented migration to continue happening. So there was this transition in the right from supporting undocumented migration and seeing it as actually useful for employers to um, to seeing it as something that was hurtful to the economy. At this exact same time, there was also a reshuffling in the left Unions started to realize that without undoc- that undocumented migrants had become a very important part of their constituency mm. and that they couldn't continue to deny them. Meanwhile, the Chicano movement in the United States had become more powerful. And beforehand, Mexican-American groups had thought, you know what, we are being seen as terrible because of these Mexican immigrants. We're being compared to these Mexican immigrants. So up until the 1970s, most Mexican-American organizations mm. were against undocumented migrants. But with the Chicano movement, there's a reshuffling in, in their groups as well. And they say, actually, they're part of our brotherhood. We should support them. So I think that the compromise was able to occur and this bill was able to pass in 1986 because of the reshuffling of all these different groups, both from the left and mm. from the right. You know, one of our uh, listeners, Sue, writes in to say, Congress, the majority of representatives in the House and 60 percent of senators passed the laws. The president then signs the laws unless he vetoes. But it seems to me that the media give the main credit to the president instead of our representatives in Congress. Do you think Reagan's role can be overstated in this 1986 amnesty? Uh, Anna, we'll go to you on this. I think... um... I think actually a lot of the blame has also been put on Senator Simpson and Senator Masoli, um, who um, sort of introduced the bill. Um, but in Mexican-American communities, it's definitely Reagan who is seen as the person who signed it. And among those who really benefited from this law because of the legalization aspect, then Reagan is sort of exhaled. But I think among historians 
And among legal scholars, it's primarily seen as something that occurred in Congress's law, as we heard before, had been introduced since 1972 onward. And finally, it was in this 1986 that Congress finally passed it. And, it, and Reagan did sign it. But I think historians see it primarily as a congressional move. Yeah. Uh, Eric Galindo, one of I want to talk a little bit about the mechanics of this law. In in particular, the idea of having to like prove that you were undocumented. Can you talk a little bit about what people had to do in order to actually receive this amnesty? Yeah, so the amnesty bill definitely had a cutoff date. You had to uh, prove that you had been in the United States um, prior to I believe it was 1982. Um, and for people who, you know, like my parents, like Patty's parents, um, you're basically trying to hide the fact that you were here, uh, undocumented for so long that it's kind of, it seems almost like counterintuitive to have to prove that you were breaking the law for all these years. Um, so yeah, I think like, that we that, didn't exactly keep records yeah, of yeah. the library. <laughs> yeah. yeah, especially since you're getting paid under the table, you're getting paid a lot of cash jobs, you're, you're not, you don't have medical insurance, you're not going to the doctor. Um, those records are really hard to prove. Um, I think that it also is like scary, right? Mm-hmm. For somebody to be like, hey, Come down to the immigration office, Venakiela Migra, where we want to know if you if you're here undocumented and how long you've been here undocumented for. It seems insane, like really, but that was what people were being asked to do: is to like come out of the shadows, come tell us how long you've been breaking the law for, and if it meets the requirements, then we'll give you a shot at staying here you know, with some sort of legal protection. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine, you know. I mean, it's kind of an act of faith, right, on all these people in the American government that they wouldn't just use that information and send them packing. You know? Yeah, and I think, I think that that, like, there's a middle, like a lot of Latino middle class people, especially in the Mexican-American community, who do, who are like law and order people, because mm-hmm. I think like this, I, I can point to this moment as like a moment where like, especially for my parents to be in like, oh, we, we trusted the system and it worked, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's the system works, worked for us. And so it, it, it is interesting, man. I, I can't imagine the like crazy, like loops your brain is doing during that moment. <laughs> Um, let's bring in our first call, Susie in San Francisco. Welcome, Susie. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah. What's your story? Uh, well, my life, I think, is similar to um, our guest today. I, my, we were part of a mixed status household. My mother crossed the border undocumented, a single mother with three girls. <laughs> and then my brother and I were born in the United States. Um, and because of Erica, she was able to, I don't know the term, I become documented in Spanish, we say arreglar, for herself and my two second oldest sisters. But my eldest sister had missed the cutoff um, at the time that she applied. So she became the only undocumented person in our family at 17 and a half oh. um, and eventually found her path to citizenship. And is now, you know, owns her own nonprofit, does a lot more for the community. Um, but without that 
I don't think that we would have gone to college. Um, we became, you know, first generation college attendees. Uh, we've earned master's degrees and, and primarily because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mother did this all on her own. Um, wow. And with the support of, you know, she worked in the fields and in the home of this amazing, amazing couple who told her about this program in the first place. She had no idea it existed. Um, And without them, we would not have been the family we are now, all connected, fully citizens. Uh, But I am forever grateful for that program. And I always ask to my mother, how did you get across the border? It was so hard. And she always laughs and says, it really wasn't back then. I crossed three times undocumented to work. And then the last time I went back and picked up my girls and came here by myself, knowing that that was the last time I would cross. And I was just like, wow, that is incredible. And she's like, yeah, we just got in a truck and drove across the border. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a story in, in my family as well. It's like, Susie, thank you so much for... Um for that call i just it's it's amazing eric i mean i assume that you many people have reached out to you to say like man you you made something that allows me to kind of hear my family story uh in this way um but what's it like to hear people say like yeah my family was like that too i mean it it definitely like pulls in my heartstrings like i really i mean we did we did it for like the community you know like all the work that i do i like to you know do it to to basically put my community back into these like history books, you know, uh, that's why I'm thankful for the work Anna does and other, other historians to, to write the history of our people. But I do think like hearing like the individual stories of like the people who benefited from this is, is so overwhelming to be honest. Like the response, like once these episodes started happening, was just people who like me never thought to ask their parents, like, you know, what was it like to cross the border? What was it like to get amnesty? Why do you, you know, what do you think about Ronald Reagan? These questions we never think to ask because we're so busy, like trying to survive. (laughs) Yeah. these great these greater forces that are honest that we never stop to examine what they actually mean but it, it yeah. has been really heartfelt and overwhelming man I, I, I i'm so honored to hear stories like that we're exploring the legacy of the 1986 immigration reform and control act with eric galindo a journalist and co-host of out of the shadows children of 86 great podcast and Ana raquel mignon associate professor of history at stanford university and author of undocumented lives the untold story of mexican migration Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're exploring the legacy of the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act signed into law by President Reagan back in the mid-'80s. Really complex, multifaceted history here. We're joined by Ana Raquel Mignan, Associate Professor of History at Stanford, and Eric Galindo, who uh, created the podcast Out of the Shadows, Children of 86. I want to bring in uh, a caller from Richmond, Rodrigo. Welcome. Hey, welcome. Um, thank you. Thank you for welcoming me. And I just want to add to this fascinating conversation. I myself, I'm a child of 86. I, you know, I got my residency thanks to it. I was born in 83. And uh, I just want to bring up the lasting legacy of this of this law and this lack of kind of a systemic response to migration. My family's from Michoacan, from Cotija. And, um, you know, first, first my, my, my father and his siblings had to grow up without, without parents, without a dad. And then, you know, their family was split apart and half of it ended up here and half of it had to migrate somewhere else. And these regions ended up, um, the regions that had so many braceros and, you know, Michoacán, Jalisco, et cetera, mm-hmm. they, they ended up really broken. And um, now Cotija is in the hands of cartels and it's, it's really difficult to even go there. Um, and I, I think that legacy continues to this day and, and families like mine continue trying to figure out how to heal that, that rift. Um, because the law helped a lot of people, but it was also deeply short-sighted. So thank you so much for this conversation, and I, I can't wait to share the, the podcast with my with my family. Hey, Rodrigo, thank you so much. I really appreciate that perspective. And Ana Raquel Mignan, this is a, a really good point, right? I mean, we I feel like your work is so much about connecting what is happening in Mexico with what's happening in the United States. And uh, talk to us a little more about the sort of dynamics that Rodrigo mentioned. Yeah, I I found his comment extremely interesting because it's not just what was happening in the United States and what the U.S. government was doing, but what I believe the Mexican government was doing. Mm. Um, If we think about it, it is the responsibility of the Mexican government to help provide jobs for its people. and, And that's not what the Mexican government was even trying to do. Instead, it was turning a blind eye toward migration, knowing that Thousands of Mexicans were crossing the border to to live without papers in another country where they were seen as, quote unquote, illegal aliens. So basically, the Mexican government was telling its citizens, go away, which is never the position that a government should take and not what the Mexican government was acknowledging that it was doing. Mm. By not implementing new strategies to create jobs in Mexico, basically, Mexican people had very... Working class Mexican people had very few options, and one of the options that they had was going to the United States. Now, for those who chose not to go to the United States or found it impossible to go to the United States, since then, another strategy has developed, which is joining cartels. Mm -hmm. So we do see this sort of, we don't have opportunities in Mexico. What do we do? We either go to the United States or we join a cartel. Those are the best opportunities that some young people have these days to succeed. You know, staying in Mexico, one listener asks, 
The trickle-down Reagan economic policies took a stand against unionized labor, and NAFTA was in development, although not, not approved till later, important to say. Uh, I was born in Chihuahua, Mexico, and I remember seeing the very first industrial complex and factories development, the Maquiladoras, was the 1986 immigration reform amnesty part of a bigger plan to destroy labor unions uh, in the United States. And Ana, let's stay with you on this. Well, the, Ma- the Maquiladoras had developed much earlier in Mexico since 1965. Um, were, and and it, it did help destroy unions because part of what was happening was Companies in the United States found that they had to pay their workers too much money. And so they simply relocated to Mexico and Mexico made it easier for them to go and create part of their product in northern Mexico. IRCA was actually implemented. The the part of IRCA that was especially anti-undocumented migration, which were two parts. One was a section that imposed employer sanctions as an in sanctioned employers who hired undocumented migrants and the fortification of the border. Mm-hmm. Those parts of the law were actually implemented to help American workers. That was the rhetoric. That's why Simpson introduced it. That sort of that was the logic. It was not to destroy unions, but to actually help American workers. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very short sighted because the other part of the law sort of eventually encouraged more undocumented workers to come. Um, additionally, it, it was short-sighted in the sense that it didn't or it didn't address the real issues of why American workers were suffering. They were not suffering because undocumented workers were coming to the United States, but because there were there was a recession because jobs were heading elsewhere and not just to Mexico. There was much more that was happening, and instead, the government scapegoated to undocumented migration. Which, as you've noted, has been a long-time uh, American <laughs> practice uh, when the economy uh, goes south. Let's uh, bring in uh, David from Oakland uh, with a point on the employer sanctions law. Welcome, David. Hi. Well, it just finally got mentioned while, um, uh, while I was in the queue that that really was the centerpiece of the bill. The original bills were about employer sanctions, and that's what affects the most people in the country. This is the reason why you have to show that you have a right to work as a citizen, legal immigrant, or with a work visa anywhere you apply for a job. Um, everybody has to do that. And that's the I-9, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it wasn't needed before IRCA. It was not illegal in any way. It was not sanctionable in any way for the employer to hire undocumented workers. It was illegal for the undocumented worker, but not for the employer. Mm. And, and this is something that was fought out. Somebody else noted this. This was really fought out in Congress. Um, Reagan really had little or nothing to do with it, except that the Congress had to adapt the bill so that Reagan would sign it. And, that was, and the, the last obstacle was the farm labor program, which was different from the main program that required five years of continuous residence uh, professor, the professor from Stanford mentioned this obliquely. Mm-hmm. The other program legalized nearly as many people as the main program, well over a million. And all they had to show was a letter from an agricultural employer saying this guy um, worked for me 90 days in the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so altogether, that's how we got to the number of 2.7 million people who were, who were legalized mm-hmm. in two different, very different ways. David, thank you so much for for that context. And Eric, you um, you mentioned this in the the podcast as well. The separate kind of agricultural 
pathway. Um, and that it actually, yeah, it seemed to have had a kind of a different effect as well. Yeah, I think, you know, that that's a great point that David brought up. The, you know, it's hard to really say, but Ronald Reagan had a lot of friends in California. There was a lot of donors to his political career who were uh, owners of large farms who were using these farm workers to work. So there is, you know, like a lot of very real belief that that is what's sweet in the pot, especially for um, the very powerful agricultural forces. And yeah, and, you know, a lot of the people we talked to say that that is actually what got the bill from dead, like totally, totally dead to new life, like even to the point where Alan Simpson himself was ready to give up. Um, he he told he tells the story in the podcast of the moment someone brings it to him that hey have you thought about like creating a program for the agricultural workers and next thing you know not only is there more buy-in from the, the administration but also from the Democrats who had been fighting this um, in in places like California. Casey writes in to say, I don't think that Reagan signed the immigration bill out of the goodness of his heart or any love of Latinos. His policy of strict border control was having a serious adverse impact on the ability of his buddies, the big growers in California, to harvest their crops. <laughs> there was a huge lobbying effort by the growers, and that's when he signed the bill. To, you. to your point, Eric, um, I want to bring in uh, Jose with the Shear Foundation just before we turn a little bit to the, to the future. Jose? Yes, uh, I'm Jose Artiga with the Share Foundation. Um, I do, you know, first to say thank you for this uh, research. It might be missing bigger pieces, you know, like interviewing um, what ha- what's happening in, in Central America. You know, the, the situation of Mexico has been happening for years. But what is turning the point is the situation in Central America where Reagan is sponsoring or, you know, supporting big massacres, you know, huge massacres that are displacing millions of people out of the region. So the, and, and the other one is the mobilization in the United States. You know, he is facing, you know, National Council of Churches uh, uh, across the country that are saying what you are doing in Central America is not good. And last, I would say we as refugees, I was one of the first refugees to receive sanctuary, we are organized, we are mobilizing, we are lobbying. You know, this is not because Reagan has a big heart that did it, you know, but because he faced a huge mobilization across the country. Yeah. Jose, thank you uh, so much. Of course, a, a very important point, and you know, I'm sure Eric would want me to note that, of course, the, the longer-form podcast, Out of the Shadows, Children of 86, does in fact mention the, the situation um, in Central America. Um, which, of course, was very, very, very bad, as you said, displacing many, many uh, people. I wanted to, you know, Ana Raquel Mignan, Associate Professor of History at Stanford, is there a lesson in IRCA for us in this moment when it does, you know, we all, I think everybody agrees, the U.S. immigration system, the tension of our economic and political drivers in this country, everything is still broken, just like it was back then, maybe in slightly different ways. Is there a lesson for us in trying to redesign the system now? I think there's a couple of lessons um, that we can that we can learn. First, 
is that efforts to militarize, to fortify the border often have the counter effect. The intention was to reduce the number of undocumented workers living in the United States. But because it encouraged Mexican workers who had been coming, as we said, and going in a circular migration to settle permanently in the United States and to bring their families, actually what IRCA did was it increased the number of undocumented migrants. What the border fortification aspect of it did was it increased the number of undocumented workers living in the United States. So I think the first thing that we can learn is that um, you know, fortification of the border will does not <laughs> always reduce workers, that that is sort of ideas of building a wall are counterintuitive and often will have the opposite effect. The other thing that I think, especially before Trump, we were seeing was this idea that a compromise was necessary. But this compromise that always goes with border fortification and anti-immigrant policies, in effect, what they do is again, they don't reduce the number of undocumented workers in, in the United States, but they do increase deaths at the border and injuries at the border and cartel violence at the border as more people have to pay very dangerous mugglers to get, to get through. Mm-hmm. I mean, for you, what would a better American immigration policy look like? I think first it would um, not be disentangled from other policies. Job creation in Mexico is, and in Central America and in other parts from where people are coming, which is not just Latin America these days, is indispensable. Um, if we were talking about the killings that occurred in the 80s and how those displaced people, I think a policy of immigration needs to really take into account why people are leaving and, mm-hmm. and address the root causes. But there's something more. It's like people are coming because there are jobs and they are needed. They're taking jobs that American workers do not want or because they have to because they're escaping violence. And so what we need is a more accurate visa program where the number of visas for people to migrate legally match the number of people who are coming and the number of people who are actually needed in the U.S. workforce. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, now it is like a joke the number of visas relative to the number of people. Absolutely. Yeah. Eric, what did you take away from this for our current moment? Obviously, there's a lot of, you know, it doesn't seem like we're close to a, a major immigration compromise or that another generation will will have this opportunity to come out of the shadows, as you describe it. Um, so what do you take away from it? Well, you know, I'm. I feel like there's a lot of nuance to like the the stuff that Anna has been talking about and some of the callers but I do think that in a very big way the current economy is being propped up by the the children of 86 right the, the people who benefited from this bill I think one thing you can look at is DACA right and you have all these people who are working um and contributing to the economy in big ways. And if something like DACA goes away, that's going to be devastating, devastating to the economy, devastating to the culture. And so to me, it's more like it needs to work. Like, again, the reason 1986 happened was out of the sheer necessity to do something after years of doing nothing. And I think here we are again at that point. So there's something for me 
and and a type a type of hope in the sense that something's going to have to happen and there's going to have to be some sort of immigration reform specifically to address daca to address the millions of families who are currently living in the shadows who don't even qualify for daca you have things like tps you have so many different uh band-aids on the system right now that the dam is going to break and so i think that hopefully something gets done before the dam breaks but if nothing else once that dam breaks they're gonna have to do something you know what i mean yeah yeah you also are making a, a kind of subtle argument in the podcast too that because this generation, the children of 86, were able to come out of the shadows, able to grow up American and you know just have a, a greater set of opportunities than if they'd remained undocumented or in mixed documentation status families, that you actually have access to change American culture in some crucial ways too, right? Or to, mm-hmm. to, to contribute to this broader cultural change that might bring about a, a yeah, greater compromise. That's, yeah, that's true. I mean, like... You know, I think this is something that it's it's said so often these days that it kind of feels like a cliche, but we are the fastest growing uh, demographic. And at its, at a certain point, it's going to be sort of undeniable to say that, you know, this country is as much ours as it is anyone else's. And I think that we are going to be in positions to make these these decisions. And I'm not just talking about like, you know, Latinos, I'm talking about young people of color who are growing up with a much more open-mindedness and i think that eventually the the like the history of the united states is one of progress right like it happens it happens very very slowly but it does happen it's not it's not necessarily a country that has moved backwards even though there are moments where it snaps back you know i think that examining history i'm not a historian obviously but just looking at it from a story like if we were looking at the story of the united states it's a story of a place that keeps changing slightly 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 for the better and i do think that what 1986 did was it's created the this huge economic and cultural and political force that is like these children of 86 and their and their children and their children's children. So it's a legacy thing. I, I do think it's going to be undeniable at some point. Yeah. We've been exploring the legacy of the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act, IRCA, with Eric Galindo, who is the co-host of Out of the Shadows, the Children of 86 podcast. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks, Alex. It was really fun to be here, and I'm, I'm so glad Anna was here to answer all the hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> Anna Camignan is Associate Professor of History at Stanford and author of Undocumented Lives, The Untold Story of Mexican Migration. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you both. I really appreciated being here. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for special coverage of the January 6th hearings next. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.